Well, can I begin by saying thank you to Philip for his welcome here today? It's lovely to be with you. It was just brilliant last week uh, that Philip was able to come and bring God's word to us down in Kells. And I want to thank you folk from Connor for so many of you coming out last Sunday night. It really encouraged our spirits, and it's great to be able to, to be together again like this. I want to begin with an apology. As you heard, it was Kells Church weekend, and there was 60 or so people away in that. Now, unfortunately, one consequence of that is that it's only the hardy that you'll see here with you tonight, because the rest have wilted, because it was a heavenly weekend, heavenly in many senses, but not least of which is the fact that there was no night in it at all. Uh, so, uh, for those who have been on the weekend and have managed to come here tonight, thank you for coming. Uh, I hope that encourages our brothers and sisters in Connor, but I'm sorry there's not very many of us because of that. But uh, could I thank the ladies? That was fantastic. Really, really beautiful singing, especially that anthem that you did there. So thank you so much for that, and it is so good to be with you. Uh, I was talking to Philip earlier on and saying, it, isn't it lovely to be able to do normal things again? I mean, we have been doing normal things, I suppose, for a little while, but we always had to stop and think before we did them and work out all kinds of things, you know, risk assessments and all that sort of stuff. We're now doing normal things without thinking, and that is just absolutely lovely and something to thank the Lord for. Now, I hope you noticed something as uh, Philip was reading from Joel 2. I hope from those verses, the sovereignty of God just shouted out at you. And as we look at this passage tonight, I, I want really to do two things in the light of God's sovereignty. One is to encourage you. I mean, most of you here tonight are believers, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And really, this passage ought to be an encouragement to you about the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God. But I also want to challenge you, because there are consequences of the sovereignty of God in our nation and in our lives that we have to take on board. And there are responsibilities that we bear that we need to think much about. You know, you don't need me to tell you that this once great United Kingdom of ours is in a sad state of decline, isn't it? Church attendance has been falling fast for a number of decades. Morals, well, <laughs> they're very much in the gutter, aren't they? It's, uh, it's rare to encounter people of real moral standing anymore. Once mighty industries have faded away. And in particular, I think we need to take on board that farming is in a bit of a state. Now, I'm no farmer, so I'm not qualified to speak much about it, but I do know that it is increasingly tough for our farming community. The cost of raw materials 
fertilizer and so forth has just been skyrocketing. And yet the prices that uh, farmers are getting are not skyrocketing. There's so much regulation now as well. Uh, it's tough, tough, tough out there in the farming community. And of course, the political situation in our land, both at Westminster and at Stormont, well, the less we said ab say about that, the better, because it's just an absolute mess. And I suppose we struggle to understand that. You know, uh, we tend to say, look, Lord, we're your people. You've promised to bless us. You've promised to watch over us. You're the sovereign one. Why is all this happening? What on earth is going on? But let me suggest that we can make a great deal of sense of it if we consider this book of Joel. If we'd started reading earlier in the book rather than at verse 18 of chapter 2, we would have seen that the land of Israel was being judged by God for turning away from Him. She had known a multitude of blessings over many years from God's hand. But the people of Israel had started to live for themselves, to live for their own pleasures, rather than for God and for His glory. And the sovereign God was actually sending His judgment upon them. He's telling them, look, I have sent locusts to come and devour your crops. And that has led to financial ruin and to famine. And you see, what was happening in reality was that the Assyrian armies were massing to attack, and there was huge political instability. I wonder, does that sound even remotely familiar? Agricultural decline? Political instability? Financial problems? These, my dear friends, are the signs of a land that is under the judgment of God. And I certainly believe that in the last few years, our sovereign God, our mighty God, has been speaking loudly. I mean, a worldwide pandemic? Did we ever think we would see that? With all our great scientific advancement, with all our great human ability, everything grinding to a halt because of a wee tiny virus and all the economic fallout of that and all the problems for agriculture and politics. Yeah, I think we have to say God is at work in judgment. But I said I wanted to encourage you because you need to know that this is not a hopeless situation. There is mighty, mighty hope. Because the message of Joel is clear. Message for God's people and for all people. Repent. Turn back to God. And your God will do great things 
and he will make things better. And, you know, verses 18 to 27 here are really God's answer to his people's cry of repentance. The situation has been bleak. God has been judging, and the people have got it. They've got the message. And they're crying in repentance. And these verses are God's answer. So the first thing that we're going to see here tonight is God's holy jealousy. Look there at the first verse that Philip read, verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. Now, God is not like us. He's not human. He doesn't have our emotions. But because of our weakness, because of our limited understanding, the Bible often ascribes human emotions to God. And that helps us to, to better grasp something of his character. And so the prophet Joel here speaks of God's jealousy for his land, including his people. You see, God has a people that he calls his own. And he is passionately in love with them. Now, think about that if you're his. He loves you with a burning passion, and he's not prepared to share his people with anyone. In that sense, he is jealous. They are his, and he's not going to let the devil hold sway over them. He's not going to hand them over to the devil. He's not going to let go of them. He's not going to let anyone or anything snatch his dearly beloved people from his hand. And so when those who are his succumb to the devil's temptations and begin to drift away from him and grow cold in their faith, God acts. He acts as a loving heavenly father. He acts the way any loving father would act. I mean, if, if you're a father, you're not going to let your little child stick its hand into the fire and be badly burnt. You're not going to let your little child run unattended across that main road and be hit by a car. No, as the, as the little hand is going towards the fire, there's a smack, isn't there? I hope not being recorded. I could be prosecuted for that. And if the, if the child is, is running for the, the road, and we smack around the legs, is that because you're brutal? Is that because you're vicious? Not at all. It's because you love. You love. You're jealous for the well-being of your child. You don't want your child to be damaged or hurt in any way, and, and therefore you act. And God acts that way with his people, not in anger, not in a sense of bitterness, not even with a heavy-hearted disappointment, but in love he acts to chastise his people, to drive them to repentance, why? So that he can pity them. 
and forgive them. Calvin describes God's emotion in this way. The jealousy of God is nothing else but the vehemence and ardor of his paternal love. Isn't that lovely? So it's very apt, therefore, that the prophet begins with God when he's dealing with the fruit of repentance. You see, it's only because of who God is and what God has done that he can forgive his people. God has chosen a people to be his very own. He loves them with this burning, passionate love, and he is willing to pardon them. And he gives that little smack to prevent his dear children from doing harm to themselves so that they will then cry out, cry out for more love, for more mercy. And he will respond to their cries. And of course, you say, how can, how can a loving father really do that? How can he cause any pain to his children? Well, just look at the cross. What happened on that cross? The beloved one of the Father. The one the Father had loved with a burning, passionate, to us unfathomable love for all eternity. It's put on a cross not according to the will of the Romans, not because the Jewish leadership wanted him dead, because it was the Father's will to crush him and to bruise him for us, for us. The Father poured out wrath on the Son and brought untold suffering to his own son because he loved us so much and he wanted to save us to make us his own dear cherished possession if the father did that to his own son what's the little smack on our bare legs as we're trying to run away from him. And, you know, I just think it's, it's lovely the way the prophet puts it. He's jealous for his land, pity on his people. And he says in verse 19, the Lord answered and said to his people, or in other versions it says, the Lord will reply to them. That's the promise of the word of God in verse 19. It's, it's telling us that God will certainly hear the cries of his repenting people. He will surely, certainly answer those cries. And so these, these verses here, dear friends, are words for Christians. We have to grasp that it's not the pagans that God is speaking to here. 
It's not the unbelievers. He's speaking to his own people, his own dear children, because they're not living as they should. They're not showing the family characteristics that they ought to show of belonging to his precious family. And, he, you know, he's, he's saying to each one of us here tonight, look, I, I love you. I really do. But your land is in the mess it's in. Not because of the failure of the politicians. Not because unbelievers have grown so wicked. But because you, my people, are not what you ought to be. That's the blunt and brutal message. He's telling us that we're to blame, that we're the guilty ones. But he goes on. He says, repent and I will answer you because as a jealous God, I'm not prepared to let you go and give you up. You face it, brothers and sisters. He gave everything for us. Jesus Christ, his own dear son, died in awesome grief, awful grief on the cross, bearing all of our sin, all of it. And in response to that, you know, surely, surely we should come in glad and full surrender, saying, Lord, whatever you want, you can have. You have given me forgiveness when I came to Jesus in repentance and faith. You have made me one of your children. You've brought me into your family, the family of the church, adopting me as your child. You've given me all of this. Look, Lord, I'm giving you my all back. I'm going to live for you and your glory alone. I'm going to put you first in everything. But have you been doing that? Have I been doing that? I doubt it. Really, uh, we couldn't complain if God cut those cords and let us go. If he said to us, I've given you a chance, I've brought you into my family, but you're a wayward child, and I've had enough of you. Go away and never come to my door again. We would deserve that, but God's grace does not work like that. In his grace, he has saved you through faith. In his grace, he has decided for you and he's grabbed hold of you. And he's never going to let you go. He's not going to give up on you. You are his. You may feel like giving up on him. He's not going to give up on you. And I think that is a marvelous, encouraging thought. Yes, there's darkness. Yes, there's judgment upon the land. 
But my dear brother or sister in Christ, no matter how far you have fallen here tonight, and maybe, maybe some of you are sitting here tonight and you, you're saying, look, I wonder does that man have private information about me? He seems to know that I haven't had a quiet time for six months. I haven't been living as I should. I have been behaving in a way that a Christian ought not to behave. And I just feel so broken. And I feel so hopeless. And I feel that not only have I let God down big time, but that he, he just can't possibly have anything more to do with me. Well, know this. No matter how far you have fallen, God can still have you back and God will have you back because he will never give up on you. Never. Never. God's holy jealousy is actually a hugely positive thing. Hugely. Because he's not prepared to let you go. But then we see God's promised provision. And you're in baller tonight, brothers and sisters, because I have an, iWa an Apple Watch, and I took it away on the weekend with me, and uh, I didn't take the charger. So it's flat. I have no idea what time it is. And my eyesight's not good. I can't see that clock. So settle in. <laughs> Let's look at God's promised provision. You know, when God hears and responds to the repentance of his people, there are certain lovely consequences that these people can look forward to. And I think we can look forward to them too. Here's one. The provision of plenty. You see, God's anger here in Joel was first to be seen in his blighting of their agriculture. The first sign of his displeasure was removing food from them. And therefore, the first sign of his acceptance of their repentance was to be the restoration of the food. You get it again and again here in these verses. Let's take verse 19, for example. Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. Or again, verses 22 to 24. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you the abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Or again in verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Yes, the harvests failed because of sin. The locusts ate their crops because of their wickedness. But 
But when the people turn back to God, he says, I'm going to fill their larders. He's going to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Things will not only be back to the way they were before, they're going to be even better. Even better. You know, brother or sister in the Lord, when you lament the state of farming or the plight of industry or the limping economy of our land, don't blame it on the government. Don't blame it on Brexit. Don't blame it on anyone else. Blame it all on sin and on righteousness and get on your knees and pray to God for mercy and forgiveness because that's what he wants to see. He wants to see people turning afresh to his son and genuinely, wholeheartedly repenting of their sin. And then, and only then, will he move and bless the land with plenty again. Then and only then will the good old days return, except they're not going to be the good old days. They're going to be even better. And of course, we need to interpret this as well in, in a spiritual manner. God is promising blessing. Blessing. You may feel that you've gone cold in your faith, and that has resulted in a coldness of life, a lack of service to the King of Kings. And God is saying, look, you turn back to me. You come back to me. And I am going to bless you. I'm going to pour out spiritual blessing upon you. And what's more, I'm going to use you in my service in a way that is glorious, and you're going to be a blessing to others, and that will bless your own soul as well. I'm going to provide you with plenty in the spiritual sense. You know, do you get discouraged when you look around and see much, so much empty wood, as it were, at a Sunday service? Oh, I wish it was the way it used to be. I mean, I remember when I came here at first 30 years ago. Come to an evening harvest, you had to come early. Downstairs would be packed, both churches, people in the gallery. Those days are gone, and we live in the day of small things, and we just can expect to see it go down and down and down. Can we? Really? The God who sent revival in 1859 has not changed. The God who saved you out of your darkness and despair and rebellion has not changed. God can move again in a mighty way. And though he doesn't need you, he wants you to play a part in this. And that begins with repentance, brothers and sisters, because revival begins with the house of God. It begins getting down on your knees with tears in your eyes and pleading with God for mercy. Mercy for you. Mercy for your congregation. Mercy for His church. Mercy for this land. And I believe with all my heart that our sovereign God can fill this building to overflowing. That it's not 
downward to despair. It's upward to glory. Upward to glory. The, the provision of plenty. But then there's the provision of safety. Sin had made once great Israel an object of scorn amongst the nations. And the Assyrians, yes, they were ready to pounce. Violence and rumors of war were the order of the day. The political institutions were crumbling. The forces of law and order were impotent and powerless. God says, turn back to me and all that's going to change. Verse 19, once again, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Or as the NIV has it, never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. And verse 26, never again will my people be shamed. He's going to drive away the army of the Assyrians. He's going to make the Assyrians, he's going to make the enemies the objects of scorn. Verse 20, I will remove the northerner far from you. I will drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and the foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. The Lord has done great things. The Assyrians, you know, uh, were the mightiest force there was at the time. How could puny little Israel stand against Assyria? They were the ones who boasted in their power and their might. But God is going to turn the glory of those who exult in their own power to nothing. And he's going to make them an object of scorn and shame. And at the same time, he's going to remove the shame from those who humble themselves in repentance. They're actually going to be glorified. I wonder, do you get it? Our hope doesn't lie in might of arms. Our hope does not lie in political scheming and political parties. Our hope is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And we who are Christians ought to seek spiritual solutions to all of the problems. And if we're going to be honest, we have many enemies. The church of Christ has gone from being the respectable thing to belong to and has become an object of derision. Hardly a day goes by that you don't read a story in the newspaper about, you know, Christians being accused, dragged before the court, sacked or whatever for holding biblical views for holding Christian views. And it's easy to feel we are the downtrodden ones. People are heaping shame upon us. And it's just going to be worse and worse and worse. Where's the light at the end of the tunnel? Well, the light at the end of the tunnel is the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The risen Lord Jesus 
can save the darkest, deepest of sinners. And the Lord Jesus Christ can vindicate his people. And he can turn the enemies away. And I think to a certain degree he's doing that. You know, we're, we're bombarded with what you might call gay propaganda and transgender propaganda and all, but uh, I don't know about you, but I find it very hard to keep up with all the initials. Uh, you know, I actually looked up BBC. They had a, a thing about the number of genders you can be. 123, I think it is. And I discovered that I am cishet. I'm not a man. I'm cishet. I'm not male. I'm cishet. Cis, because I still identify with the gender that was assigned to me at birth. And het, because I'm heterosexual. And you tear your hair out, and you say, how's it going to change? And you know something. The uh, transgender movement and the lesbian movement and the feminist movement are ripping pieces out of each other at the minute. What's the Lord doing? Turning it around. He's turning them upon themselves. He's treating them like the Assyrians. But if this is to progress and if the enemies are to be thwarted we have to seek spiritual solutions turning back to God in genuine repentance turning back to the word and the absolute certain belief that the word is our only firm foundation turning back to gospel proclamation from our pulpits and in our lives. Because it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And it's the gospel that will change things. And all the protesting in the world will not change a single life or a single attitude. But when God's humbled, broken, repentant people turn to him in faithful prayer and return to the things that really matter and proclaim Jesus as the only Savior. You know something? The Lord will do wonderful things. Bishop Percival once said, you cannot create a new world except by creating a new heart and a new purpose in common man. I'm going to stop there. I could go on. I've got pages more, but I'm not going to go bother you with them. I'm just going to say this. There used to be a song that said, the answer, my friends, is blowing in the wind. It ain't. The answer, my friends, is to be found on your knees. On your knees before the Lord in hum humility and brokenness, confessing your sin afresh, your part in this sorry mess that is our world. 
the answer, my friends, is to be found in the pages of this book that reveal to us the greatness of our sovereign God and should fill us with tremendous confidence in the simple gospel message that Jesus saves, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Are you encouraged? Are you encouraged to repent? Are you encouraged to look to the greatness of our God? and to go into the future with utter confidence in him. Let's just pray.